1: Hello and welcome to Food for Thought, a podcast gab fest where in a multiracial mix of queer writers gather around the table to talk about sex, Mm. identity, Mm. and culture, (laughs) what we like to read and who we like to read. Food for Thought. Get into our nooks and crannies. Yes. I love English muffins.
2: Ooh, English muffin. <laughs> oh, what, do what do y'all like on your English muffin? What's your topic You of know choice? what I really um, miss?
1: Oh, God. I just miss, mm. like, a sausage egg and cheese. Like, a New York sausage oh, egg and yeah. cheese just at the fucking mm, yes. sloppy bodega for, like, two bucks. Same. Yes. I mm. love
3: a, a, hot, a sausage egg and cheese with hot sauce. Mm. I also love, you know, a. a sp- I love a spreadable peanut butter and strawberry jam. It has to be non-natural peanut butter i don't want none of that peanut butter with like you know the oil floating on top like just give me the chemicals GIF. you want G- 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 yes. yeah G- G- For- G- not Jif, but like slightly better than just skipping you know I, mean? I am peter pan
2: because i was gonna say I'm, I'm similar fran but you as always are just a little better than me
3: no just bougie just, just, just bougie just not better
2: i, I am fully Jif and honey I love a toasted with a little with a a jiff peanut butter layer and then a little drizzle of honey on top. A drizzle of honey is pretty
4: is pretty fancy though, Joe. I don't know you. You might be getting bougie. I see your fancy air conditioning on the wall in your apartment. You're (laughs) bougie now. Wait, what? What's on the wall of my apartment? Your fancy air conditioner.
2: Oh, true. No, I have flowers today. Look, y'all. I have tulips. It's spring. Um, Oh.
4: the queer I don't has really, tulips. That's cute. I really, I don't really like, like tulips. Um, I I much prefer a cinnamon raisin English muffin, only Thomas's brand. And acceptable um, acceptable <laughs> toppings include butter and cream cheese, butter and cinnamon sugar, <laughs> melted butter and jelly. That's it. Love. Do like a like a like wow. a pan, pan dulce.
3: Yes Like a will say,
2: Like a uh, brioche suisse I'm sure.
4: <clears throat> Just like a brioche I, I suisse I knew we were getting oh, there god. I knew that we <laughs> <It> were was, <laughs> was going to happen right, Listen, right.
1: I'm Tommy Teebs Pico Indigenous American poet, screenwriter, TV writer And did they have Erdogan in New York? No, no. okay Well, Erdogan aficionado, no. thank you Erdogan,
3: did you know that Erdogan is nowhere spelled backwards? Oh god,
1: now I'm never going
3: back their minds, their mm. minds. Some like some like dusty ass Urban Outfitters poet like decided on the name is what it's. I'm getting.
1: just gonna go back to Trader Joe's. Never mind. I'm
2: Joseph Osmondson, scientist, nonfiction writer, and life is pointless and we all die.
4: <laughs> oh, oh, thanks, Joe. <laughs> How'd you? You're welcome.
3: welcome. I'm Fran. I'm a writer. I'm an editor, and much like Mary J. Blige and the cast of Trolls Two, I don't
4: know what I'm doing here. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. (laughs) Um, Mary J. Blige is my favorite music to clean my apartment to. Let me just say that. Oh,
3: really? That's good apartment cleaning
4: music. It's, it's, it is the best. It's Mary J. Blige
3: or nothing. Um, I'm picturing you (laughs) using the broom as like a microphone. 100%.
4: And
1: dancing like Mary J. Blige.
4: Yes. Fully (laughs) in, in booty shorts and a tank top. That's all. If that, like it's, it's, it's a show. It's a full show. I'm going to start charging tickets. Um, <laughs> I'm Den Michelle, and I'm a reader, writer, and former figure skater, and I've recently discovered this reality show called Married at First Sight, and I am obsessed. Okay, makes sense. Uh, today... What we're gonna
1: do? About what we're you. gonna do tonight is what we gonna we're do, gonna teams? answer some of your questions once again. Uh, we're gonna talk about an industry that we are all tangentially aligned to, and to finish Ooh. this, uh, we're going to have a little sweet treat, a petite sweet treat, a petite petite sweet treat. <laughs>
2: Take it away.
1: I'm feeling a little peckish. Let's start the top of the show the way any good top should with a little tease, our uproarious appetizer segment amuse Boosh. And Den, why don't you do it? Um, well, get out I don't your have coin purse's benches, it's time for Penny oh, for your thoughts.
3: Sorry.
1: <laughs> so you're this is all I I think this you're is one, our
3: sixth year of
1: doing
4: this. You're you're one line on the show, D. Get at your coin versus benches. It's time for Penny for your thoughts. That's right. It's,
3: it's okay, Den. I don't have any lines.
1: <laughs>
5: <laughs> hey, thoughts. Um, first, I want to say I'm a queer woman who absolutely loves your podcast. I just think you all bring something so special to the table individually, and it forms such a beautiful, cohesive hilarious, inviting, sometimes raunchy space. I just love it. Um, but my question is, have you ever experienced a kind of profound sense of loneliness for an elongated period of time? Um, basically feeling like you're no one's priority or that even your friends never reach out to you and ask you to catch up or hang out? Um I'm just wondering if you have dealt with that and how you have dealt with that. If so, um, it would really help me. Thank you so much.
3: I guess up top, it's worth mentioning that we have one, if not two episodes about loneliness where we talk about, you know, loneliness versus aloneness and what that means Mm -hmm. to us. Mm -hmm. Um, We also brushed on this in our (laughs) brain drugs episode, but like we're encroaching hard and fast like An epidemic of loneliness, like kind of that's Mm -hmm. being constructed by our very individualistic, media driven culture that, like, kind of makes us feel even lonelier than we already are. Um, I don't know. Those are just some things that I was thinking about at the top of my head. I don't know if that resonates with any of you. Yeah, sure.
1: And I also think, like, um, this caller specifically said people aren't checking in on you you're no one's priority yeah. and no one's asking you to hang out and when I when I when it happens to me I just I remind myself to be more proactive and to be the one who reaches out because mm. you know especially in LA in New York it was totally different I feel like I, I had a more of a community of people in LA it's way more scattered and if I didn't reach out to anybody I would literally never hang out with anyone <laughs> and I think yeah. a part of it mm-hmm. has to do with the fact that like I'm not used to making spontaneous plans anymore or having spontaneous anything right. or, you know, everything has to be like planned out and plotted and all that kind of stuff. And, and, you know, recently I will, I will reach out to somebody and be like, Hey, like, do you want to like catch up and have a phone date? And they're like, do you actually want to go somewhere? And I'm like, Oh yeah, I forgot yeah. we could do that. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. It's very, it's
3: so, f- I mean, I know like Tommy's case is different from this woman's case, but like it, it's, it would be f- if Tommy was like, Hmm, like no one really wants to like hang out with me and like no one's reaching out and i'm feeling really lonely and and i wonder if it's because you know i deleted all my social media and like my public persona and like refuse to interact with people and also don't leave my house and i've told people time and time again that i hate people and hanging out it's like uh, it's like you 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 kind of give the energy you receive and i don't know what energy this woman is giving to, like, her peers or colleagues. I don't know if she has social media. I don't know, like, kind of what her practices of, like, kind of, you know, reaching out to friends, what have you. But the way, unfortunately, our social circles are built, like, we just forget each other really easily. Mm-hmm. And yeah. there are people on the other side of this that are just as lonely as you and wondering the same things. Like, why is no one mm. reaching
4: out, you know? I, yeah, I relate I related very deeply to a lot of this question, but in particular, the part about not feeling like you're anyone's priority, because Mm. in the very specific context of dating and relationships, like my last few years of dating and relationships, I've primarily dated people who were, who are poly, who are in like, who are either married or in serious relationships. And so I am not, like, they care about me, I'm a priority, maybe to an extent in certain ways, but there is a glass ceiling as to how far that can go. And one of the things that I've, in the last six months, really been thinking about, because for a long time I was like, oh, this works for me, it's it's sort of, in certain ways it's low commitment, in certain ways it's easier, but the pandemic really highlighted for me, like, it was like when everything, when shit hit the wall, all of those people who could prioritize me to some degree when it was easy no longer had space really for me at all. Mm -hmm. And that was a very difficult thing to sort of deal with. And it made me rethink ultimately what I want in a relationship and who I can be in a relationship with because we're living in a world where more and more unprecedented things are happening all the time, and Mm. things that we thought maybe were workable for us are not anymore. And I think that relates a lot sort of to what Fran was just saying about how there are reasons why at certain moments in our lives we might put out a lot of energy where it's like, I hate people, don't talk to me, don't DM me, da 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 -da. Um, for various reasons, because we might feel like we need more alone time or we need more solitude. But it's just been really striking to me how... When the context changes, our needs change and that's okay yeah. because we're human beings and we're, and that's supposed to happen. And we should be able to recognize when our needs change and when we have to change our behaviors in order to meet new needs. But for me, I'm just always thinking of that and giving myself grace and being like, it's okay. And also recognizing that, um, if I, if I feel like no one is making me a priority, then I, can make myself even more of a priority. Like I can up that for mm-hmm. myself, and I can do that for myself. And like sometimes there's difficulty in being really independent and doing for yourself all the time. But also, you can you can meet some of your needs that way, and it can help. I'm not. I'm I,
2: this. I might be the only one here, but
4: this this caller
2: really reminded me of my myself in my 20s. Um, I had a huge complex around being left out or not being included or always being the one to reach out. And that comes, that came from, I realized um, then probably I, I even, I realized probably even then, but because as a, as a femme queer kid, I was just made fun of and excluded. Like people would do things without me all the time. That was just like a normal part of my childhood. It was just like, Oh, I didn't get invited to birthday parties or this or that. And so it, put up this sort of trigger that I had around um, the dynamics and relationships where I'm not being invited to everything or I'm not – I'm having to text first all the time. Uh, And that – a part of that was my work to do on myself, to to tell myself I'm not a loser 12-year-old kid who's getting beat up and excluded anymore. Like, I'm a person whose time is valuable and whose, you know, relationships are valuable. And then I also, you know, I had to – it just took time to find the right friends, to find the right friends, the right people where we sort of are a good fit for one another in terms of our, like the good, the good close friends. Like I still have a lot of, of, um, Good, fr- you know, friends who are not the people who I go to for my like sort of daily check ins and daily needs, but I've managed to prioritize that. Be like, I, I literally, it was in therapy in my mid thirties, and I said, I'm going to stop engaging in relationships that don't make me feel good about myself most of the time. It's, it's not like every relationship always has to make you feel good all of the time. But if a relationship, either dating or a friendship, makes you feel bad or or hurt or left out a lot of the time you can decide to not engage in that relationship or set different expectations for yourself and open up space for yourself for a new relationship a new friendship a new type of person who actually is capable of meeting your needs and so mm. it's both i think the self-worth mm. work the self work to to get rid of some of the triggers of oh my god i'm always the one texting first and i'm being left out and I love being left out now. I'm fine. <laughs> my friends could go do things without me, and I, it is like it is just fine. Um, but I also have better relationships and better communication in my relationships. So that if I do feel like, hey, I've had to hit you up the last ten times we've talked, could you please, you know, be a little bit more present in my life? The other person would certainly hear and try. You know what I mean? And I, I think mean? that there's yeah. um,
1: something that we're kind of ignoring, or maybe not. not atomizing as much which is we're coming off of a couple of years where isolation was akin to safety and people not reaching out was actually an act of care and we've got to (laughs) kind of learn unlearn those instincts and it's going to take everyone a little while yeah Mm, it's time we get to the thought process spelled t-h-o-t and G-A-J-O-G. this week, slinging our meat is the one and only Den.
3: <laughs> yes, Den.
2: Let us taste your salami.
3: No,
4: no, no. Some pepperoni. Oh. <clears throat> the pepperoni. I want to think of something smart to say in response to that, but I can't. I can't. Um, so we're just gonna go right into it, mm-hmm. y'all. Today, we want to talk about publishing. In the time since this little bird-ass podcast was created, we've all had a little bit of a literary glow up. And now we want to spill the tea. Fran has a book proposal they're working on. I'm an editor-in-chief, or as I like to say in certain channels, HBIC at a major literary journal. Ho's book about viruses and queer tears publishes in a few months. And had I written this intro two days ago, I would have said that Tommy T-E-E-B-S-Pico had fully (laughs) flown the coop. For TV writing. But last hmm. night in an electric literature virtual salon, he admitted that he's working on a poem. And if he denies it, I do have video evidence. Mm. <laughs> we don't have to talk about she's, it. She's back. <laughs> she's back. She's back. The bitch is back. Putting all that Let aside, him, though, let's not forget that he did publish four books in four years, so he knows a thing or two about literature. Yo. <laughs> Anyway, we're going to talk about the industry that we've kind of danced around slash kind of devoted our lives to, and that means talking art making, promotion, how to write a book, how to get your book read, literary Twitter, and as always, the ever changing, ever controversial discourse. <laughs> I want to get the conversation started by asking my bodies, why do we even do this? Why are we writers? <laughs> and why? It's for the money. D. Literally, publish?
1: still don't know. It's for the money. It's for that check-out. Uh, yeah, the payout out is check. so big. Oh, my God.
3: the payout Oh, it's just... huge. I love getting paid big bucks as a writer. The most
4: powerful <laughs> role you can have in any industry.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: When all the zeros come before the numbers on the check, that's when you know you're getting paid in large. <laughs> that's right.
3: That's right, honey. Oh, big So, bucks. to
4: be clear, just to be clear, I, I do
2: think when I was first thinking about writing a book, uh, and you hear about something like a six figure advance. That's, not, I mean, to me, I'm poor. That sounds like a lot of money. Um, and so I was like, oh, that is a life changing amount of money. First of all, most people don't get six figure advances. I certainly did not. I got much less than that. Second of all, it, taxes takes away a lot. Yeah, and cut third that of all, half. Yeah. That's for that's for literally like five to ten years of work. So if you count if you count it per year we are not talking enough money to live on at all. Like it is just brutal how little we get paid for how much work we do. And I think that there are exceptions to that, you know, there are people who get the high six figure, seven figure book deal or the people who have a day job or a teaching job where an an influx of a big paycheck does change their life. I mean, that does happen, but it is not like it really almost can't be a goal because it just is like, it happens rarely Mm. and you can't really control whether
1: it happens to you or not. And, And also like the, the, the big money, it usually goes to people who have a followers or like, you know, they're like millions of followers or they're like already a celebrity. Or, I mean, I was talking with, um, Jen Baker the other night. She was in L.A. and we had dinner. She's an um, editor at Amistad, I believe. Yeah, and she was kind of talking about who's getting money and who's not getting money. And I feel like every time I talk to, like, Sarah Rosetter, she's, like, talking about how publishing is in the can. Uh, Dan, do you have any sense of this?
4: Is is publishing over? <laughs> Publishing it's is IP so... development
2: now, teams. It's, it's IP development.
4: <laughs> I mean, that's the reason Kinda. why everyone's wanting to write for TV, right? To an extent, um, is that so often it's it's screenwriting where you can actually make money. I will say though, as a person who's fully in like publishing, right? Like I'm like as we all know, I be- recently became full time literary when I became editor in chief of Electric Literature, and so I will say that in fact, I don't think publishing is over. Um, you know every year more books are published and so that's a good thing and actually not to talk about covid too much but but generally speaking in broad terms the pandemic was really good for the publishing industry and for um and for books because people were buying books um, in droves. And then, and then when there was a lot of social unrest in 2020, like that helped certain segments of the publishing industry, um, somewhat temporarily, but it did. And so it, it actually was kind of not a bad time to be in publishing. But I think when we talk about publishing, um, being over in a different sense, um, one of the things that we've been talking about, um, is that in the last few months, a lot of young, talented editors, like folks who've been in the industry five, you know, between five and ten years, um, have really gotten fed up with the difficulty of rising in the industry, the extremely limited way in which um, salaries rise in the industry, the ways in which they're overworked, the ways in which the publishing elite... Um, don't necessarily know how to do certain aspects of their jobs, which means that younger editors are tasked with doing a lot of admin work for their leaders and also doing the work of editing and trying to build their own lists and and eventually maybe being able to buy books, which means they're often doing two jobs. And so they're leaving, they're leaving in droves and they're talking about this. And so, um, you know, publishing may, it seems as though publishing, I think will continue books will continue to be bought um, and published, but, You know whether or not the industry is really functional and sustainable um, and healthy. I think that's a whole nother conversation, and a lot of people are talking. That's why we have we had um, the 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 anonymous account last year, Publishers Weekly, W E A K L Y, that was on Twitter, and now we have a different one, XOXO Publishing with three Gs, where people are sort of anonymously talking. Um, about all kinds of things that are happening or have happened in publishing and why they've left or what or or what makes their lives difficult. So there are changes that have to be made.
3: And like as a side note, like media, as in like writing for like websites, like you know, GQ or like, you know, the conde nas of the world, like the kind of like more journalistic writing mm-hmm. is like Just as busted, if not even more busted. Like the the cataclysm that's happening in unions, in the accountability with how these websites make money, which is through web traffic, which relies solely on the power and profit of Facebook and Google, is like so, so, so deep and so corrupt that it's like no wonder that like people like Teebs and I make jokes about how we're not writers anymore. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, Fran. How has your process been? My writing process, LMAO. I yeah, mean, with this new with the with the book. Yeah, because you're working I mean,
2: on something right now. Th-
3: this is like, I mean, the, as a side note, something that I just wrote to my editor is that there was like a huge dissonance between. This is kind of like maybe a separate conversation, but there was a huge dissonance between what I. Um, The book that I was trying to write and the book that I wanted to Mm. write. And I think the book that I was trying Uh to write was a book that I felt everybody needed to hear. And it was the book that had duty Mm. and it was the book that had obligation. But as we've said on this podcast before, obligation doesn't make good art. And so I think at a certain point I had to reckon with myself with the fact that there's this whole other book that I actually want to write a whole lot more. And so that's what I sent 15,000 words on. Um, but to be honest, uh, the the answer to that question also kind of answers your first, Den's first question, like, why do we write? And like, I think a lot about Zadie Smith and her essay, Why I Write, which is like kind of cheeky and irreverent, but like the the point, the kind of final point on that book as to why Zadie Smith writes is that it's something to do with the time, (laughs) like period. She's just like, it's just a way to pass the time. And like, it's obviously like meant to be kind of like cheeky, but like the point kind of is that if you are trying to write because you believe it is your life purpose, or if you're trying to write because you need this writing to be important to the world, you're kind of writing yourself into a corner um, and you're not writing from conviction. Um, You know, life purpose is like an artifice. All you can do is live your life in the way that makes you happy. And I would hope that that would mean you're writing a book or writing something that makes you happy too, you Mm -hmm. know? Obviously, Mm -hmm. we don't always have the privilege of that choice. Sometimes we just need to write for survival, which I am like very used to doing as a freelancer for years. Um, But yeah. The, The disconnect between the projects we want
2: and the pro- projects that publishing wants from us mm-hmm. is, it's it's just the hardest thing, I think. And that's true in publishing. That's true in journalism, as you say, Fran. That's true in, in many arts. You know, and I think one of the things that's magical about younger people right now is that there's more and more people who want, uh, artistic practice, artistic production to be a part of their life. And there isn't more access to, like, who gets to be a, a capital A artist. Yeah. And so there's this huge desire to make work, this huge desire to have that work uh, go out into the world and meet viewers or listeners or readers and and no capacity in these dinosaur industries to sort of allow for for that. You know, I sent out so many, you know... My my book that's coming out in June would not have been a book without this show. I don't think I've ever said that um, mm. in public. Uh, it was a solicitation from a junior editor at at Norton. Shout out Mo. Um, and frankly, without a young queer junior editor getting my project, like under understanding it, um, the book would never have been a thing. I mean, it just wouldn't like people. So many people in the decision making rooms at these. A larger presses, you know, Norton's sort of a, a medium sized press, and I got a very medium sized advance, uh, a small advance, but they they don't get the work. They don't get like I'm specifically writing an essay collection that is queer and queering the possibilities of an essay and a collection, and it is not like a lot of other collections, um, and. I hope it does well. I think it's going to do well. There are readers. You know, it's what Kiese Lehmann talks about all the time. There are readers out there for his work, but no one in publishing believed him. Mm. No one. They all said, no, yep. these people don't read. They're not going to buy books. You know, yep. it, it's not going to work. And then, like, he, you you have to prove to these idiots who have no imagination, who view publishing as a, essentially as commerce, uh, and you're coming at it like...
4: I wish my weird queer art.
2: Um, But you have to kind of prove to those people that your art will find its readers. You have to. And you have to prove that to yourself almost first. Like, believe in yourself that, like, I can make a book that is my weird queer art that will also sell enough copies to pay for itself.
3: And when it comes to, like, your weird queer art succeeding, like, you know... I always say there are kind of like two ways of succeeding in any given industry. There's kind of the trickle down where you make friends with a big wig editor at a major publishing house and they're willing to read your stuff because you're buddy buddy, because you have access or privilege or you got lucky or whatever. And then the power of that, you know, advocacy trickles down and and you're successful. But there's the trickle up wherein you push all your coins into the underdogs. The way Joe found a junior editor at a Norton house who believed enough in the story to publish it, like that's where you have to push your chips. Like believe in collective power that's at the bottom that will help you make the thing or will believe in the thing, you know? And with with that, like it is always, always, always going to be a more fulfilling and often more sustainable way to just like make the art that you want to make
2: mo literally i i sent in an essay from my book uh and mo was like i see what you're trying to do here but how about you go just a little more experimental because i was holding back with the expectation that the editor at norton would not want me to go to the place that the essay was really asking to go so they read the essay got what it wanted to do and got why i wasn't Mm. doing it you know and would a more senior um you know, more what a straight what a straight editor have viewed that piece that way, probably not.
1: Yeah, when you talk about like these publishers treating their literature at, like commerce. I mean, welcome mm. to fucking Hollywood, dude. Like, <laughs> <laughs> seriously, Hollywood, like it's even it's like uh, it's even yeah. less forgiving, and it but it like wears yeah. something different on its sleeve. Like it's I feel like Hollywood wants to have the person on stage thanking the studio for a diversity or whatever, but they don't actually want to invest so much in experimental weird yeah. voices and it's because it's an investment it's not art <laughs> from their end you know yeah. um i'm curious like so den and i yesterday we did a electric literature panel on how writers deal with rejection and publishing was a part of that conversation as well and i'm curious like what does capital p publishing do for you that like self-publishing wouldn't i have i mean i've
2: i have i have ai have had experience i had two books on small presses and I have a book on a major press now. And one thing that is a common denominator is you have to yeah. hustle. Being on a major press, your book will not do well if you don't meet the PR people at least where they're at. I've, you know, I've, I'm i working really, really hard. Mm-hmm. And it comes from, that was my expectation because I come from a small press background and sold thousands of books at a small press which just doesn't happen unless you are you know Teebs invited me on tour I used all my connections people you know I, I worked really hard I was I was my own PR yeah. person Um, so I think I was just going to finish by saying I think authors get really messed up when they sign up, like messed up emotionally when they sign up for a major press and have these expectations. I'm going to sell thousands of copies. My press is going to oh, do all yeah, my PR. No. It's it's like, it's still, you still have to block off like a six month period have of time. You to do it yep. 10, 10, 15 hours a week. I'm going to be working on this. I, I'm going to be making spreadsheets of people who are going to get the book. I'm going to reach out. I'm going to follow up. Like it's just a part of your, and it feels icky because that's not, it's it's essentially doing PR and it's, you know, there's kind of all this weird feeling around being self promoting, blah, blah, blah. But like, if you don't do it in the way the world is, if you don't do it, your book won't, won't do as well. The only people that,
3: the only people that don't have to work on their publishing workflow are celebrities and celebrity writers. You know what I mean? And, And when I say celebrity writers, like I don't mean like, you know, New York times bestsellers, like even New York, most New York times bestsellers, like, have to work so fucking hard for not that much Mm -hmm. money. You know what I mean? Like, I'm
4: talking about, like, you know, Jonathan Franzen or Zadie Smith. You know what I mean? But I mean, even straight up celebrities, like, I I have Mm -hmm. some friends who are the editors of some celebrity memoirs, and they're like, such and such hasn't posted on their Instagram. I don't know why they haven't posted. Da-da-da-da-da. Needs to be posted. But I'll say this, too, because now I'm on, I'm, I, first of all, Everything that Joe and Fran are saying is one hundred percent correct in publishing, and it doesn't matter whether you're coming from an independent press or a major press. Um, I, I I have not self-published, so I don't technically know, but my feeling is that um, coming from you know, a, if you can a major press that has a, a bit of a PR machine to it, gives you a better chance. It gives you a fighting chance. But coming from the other side of it, at Electric Lit, we have five million readers. Every every literary book that's coming out is sent is pitched to a to me and to my team um, because they want us to feature it in some way and it's really interesting because you know we get great pitches from authors who are doing that work themselves because they don't have a much of a pr side behind them or they don't have a publicist and we get pitches from publicists um what really matters for us is like is that the pitch be really good and something that makes sense for us but i will say this like I'm saying that, like, coming from being published by Penguin, Random House, or Harper, HarperCollins can give, or Norton can give you a chance at making a dent in some of that. But, like, my eyes glaze over every day reading pitches from this publicist at Random House and that publicist at HarperCollins and that publicist at Norton. And it's, it's, it, it's, it's almost like you can do the work. Um, Or you can do some of that work and your PR people can do some of that work, but the difficulty is making a dent and there's no right or wrong way to approach that. Like, it just has to catch our eye to get our attention. It's a little easier, I think, critically to like, to like, get reviews and get, get, um, the attention of critics when it's coming from a major press for sure. That's a lot easier, but even that does, there are books that like win all kinds of prizes and don't earn out the advance because not enough people buy them. Yeah. So there's also like, different ways of thinking about how you want to try and pursue and build a career for an author. Um, and agents can do some of that work. Publishing houses can do some of that work. They know that a lot of literary work isn't going to make them money, and that's part of why they publish lots of commercial stuff or publish celebrity stuff, because we're published on the backs of those people making huge amounts of money mm-hmm. a lot of the time. Um, so some of this is in the business model, but it's just a really... It's a really difficult thing and I think a lot of writers think that I get that six figure advance, I get that hundred thousand dollars, hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and that's that's the answer that will save me. And it's like, no honey, budget first of all, budget that because it's not it's not nearly that much money once you once everyone gets paid back that needs to get paid back. Mm-hmm. And second, you better hustle and and to to an extent be shameless, like be honest about it. Because also, like if you're in the community, we are all gonna have to do that at some point. And yeah. um, like any industry, like everything run, like you know, things run on goodwill. Things run on favors. Like all of that matters too. Like make friends, nice. be kind, be generous, and then people will want to be kind and be generous with you. Right.
2: Speaking of goodwill, who is your least favorite writer on Twitter? That's a trap
5: That's a trap
3: I actually don't follow writers on Twitter So I I don't have I decline to answer the question Fran is avoiding the question I I don't know what you're talking about I don't have a Twitter
1: so I don't know what the girls are doing right now So Wow.
3: That's a nice try, Joe. What is this, what, this Diane Sawyer gotcha journalism you're trying What about you, D? What I know you're on Twitter, hon. I represent a major literary
4: publication. So, <laughs> no. Um,
3: I will. Okay, Joe, just, just to incriminate <laughs> yourself, go for it.
2: That Lauren Howe woman is a horrible. <laughs> She's a bully. <laughs> Um, uh, yeah. you know, it, it was, yeah. a, it was a discourse. We no don't need difference. to go back there, but I That's just, what like, I, was gonna I say. actually get really triggered by writing Twitter by people who are bullies and I won't name all their names, but there are a lot of them. And it's like it, I don't like you were saying that D and I agree with you, like y- you want to go into the publishing process, even selling a book, having people want to be on your team. Yeah. Working with an editor is intense. You want your editor to be on your team. This doesn't mean you roll over and take every edit that yeah. they give you, but it means like that you want to have a good, positive, friendly relationship with that person. Mm-hmm. And if possible, not an adversarial one. And if you feel like you're going to have an adversarial Relationship with that editor, maybe that person is not the right editor mm. for you. Even if yep. it's a little more money yep. than someone else, because the book is not going to be something you're proud of or that you can even survive making or whatever. You know, you have to treat yourself like a person and be like, "Do I want a hundred thousand dollars to work with an editor who's going to butcher my work? Particularly if it's like a cross difference. If they're like a straight person, they don't get it, but they're here offering you money, but it's going to come at the cost of your soul or your art. You know, like what?" Mm-hmm you know do you take that I wouldn't judge someone who takes it but I also understand that it might it might not be the best so it's like the people who walk through the literary worlds with like such little grace for anyone else having mm-hmm. being a person making a mistake you know it is just like it bums me out
4: yeah I 100% agree and I I was actually even though like I I I I know in the past my rotation was then don't give a fuck and now I give a fuck because I have a job that I love. But I would have said that same person too for the exact same reasons. But it's also really important on multiple levels because there there's the process of of having a book that you then want to go out into the world, but it's also like if you are lucky enough to maybe have a choice of like of of editors to choose your work. Um one of the things that a lot of people don't really know is that really your editor is the biggest advocate that your book will have within Mm -hmm. the publishing Mm -hmm. house. Because the editor is going to be kind of like the fulcrum of the work that gets done around your book. Mm -hmm. The publicity work, the marketing work, the design and cover work. The editor is kind of the... Almost like the boss that everyone is going to, and so mm-hmm. you need your editor to advocate for you and to advocate for your book. And what this also means mm-hmm. is that when you're choosing, um, when you're thinking about who your book is going to go out to, and 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 if you're lucky enough to have choices, like choosing who's gonna who who you want to work with as an editor. Um, you need someone who you know is gonna like ideally, you know, have that kind of gravitas and take that kind of gravitas and be willing. We use this expression like, I'm, 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 is this the hill you want to die on sometimes? Like with certain things with, with Lauren Howe and, and the Twitter presence, I'm like, is this really the hill you want to die on? You need to have an editor who's willing to die on the hill supporting your book, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so that's what you're looking for. But it also means, like and i just think of this as courtesy like doing your best to operate publicly and privately because it's a small community and gossip is writers like blood like like life blood like doing your best to operate personally and professionally publicly and privately as someone who it's not difficult for them to represent, it's not difficult for them to advocate for. Um, you know what I mean? That whole Lambda Literary Lauren Howe thing. Ultimately, I mean, they said it, and I knew it lo- long before they were quoted in the New York Times. Um, it was very clear to me based on what the discourse was and what had been out there. I was like, they didn't, they didn't like remove this person from consideration because she was potentially defending someone who's a turf. They did it because they can't stand behind someone who's bullying trans people online and there's a pattern yeah. of that behavior that goes back several years that i mean i mean people this in in the year of our lord and savior beyonce screenshots exist the evidence is there so like <laughs> i'm not don't at me like i'm telling the truth um but it's like you know Lambda's like we're not considering someone who's doing a lot of online bullying like like don't make it difficult for people to advocate for you because that can get in the way oh
1: god yeah i mean you know there's like so many ways that people stick their foots in their mouths and and it's just like you're not you're not private you're not on private bro you're on public (laughs) like we all see it the other thing is like you know a lot of times people ask me i've gotten this from from a few different people um about how to get your book out there because Mm -hmm. because you're a genius at it, Teams, because you're really good I, at yeah, it. Yeah, on every level. But like The thing is, my first press was a small press, and my second press was Tin House. And I thought like, oh, Tin House is going to take care of it. And like, it's still a very small organization, and nobody yep. is going to advocate for your book harder than you. Like, you yep, have yep. to be your own book's champion, you know? And that means like, and for a long time uh, I was an intern at Soft Skull Counterpoint. So I saw the form emails that people who work at these presses send out it's the same one everywhere yeah, and it was it i you yeah. know i took the initiative to personalize those it's like hey i you know i would google the person yeah. that I was sending it to as an intern making no money just because i wanted to get mm-hmm. into the publishing industry somehow um googling the people i was sending it to and adding an extra line up top like Hey, um, I see that you got a blah, blah, blah. Like, that's really cool. I have one too. Anyway, there's, I'm doing yep. this book, like, blah, blah. So, like, I'd had that experience. So when I queried people, I made sure to individualize the emails to the degree that I could to also like include, to be like, I've looked you up. I know what you're about. Have some statement like that in my query or in like whatever. The other thing is like lateral ascension. Like if you're a writer, you probably have friends Mm -hmm. or writers who will pitch reviews or interviews Mm -hmm. or something like that. That's another big, like that's how I got a New Yorker profile. You know, it was like a writer who I knew and Ev who like then, um, Pitched it and it went through, you know, and and like mm-hmm. that's like another part of it The uh, you know, go on podcasts, you know, see whose work you're in conversation with and look at where they've been interviewed, where they've been published, where, you know, where they've um, had reviews or whatever. And also like uh, like you have to y- you you do it might feel icky and it might feel weird and that's OK. You're just going to have to okay. feel that way.
4: Yep. It's okay to ask for favors.
1: Yeah, it's okay for to help, ask for yeah.
4: favors, and also like. The number of people that I went to at my MFA program, we graduated ten years ago, who right now are like selling their first book and, and doing that out, and like we've maintained friendships for ten years, and now it's not awkward, and they're hitting me up and they're like, "Would you cover this?" and I'm like, "Of course, I'll I'll find we'll find a way to cover it. It's not a problem." But I also have to say, what Teeb said about personalizing is so 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 important. Every year, publishers, the folks at the top of of the publishing industry, are making the directive to their staff, like you need to you need to pu- buy more books, publish more books, literally every. year and they're not like growing um the staff in order to support all of that. And so you have publicity people and marketing people who are overworked and underpaid, and they are not able to do the work of things like personalizing, you know, if they're sending to 50 different outlets to pitch to pitch a spot on an author or a new book, like they don't have time to personalize that and to do all that well. And so then you have unpaid interns doing that kind of work. But it makes a huge difference because you're looking at my inbox, I'm getting 75 new pitches every day about new books, da-da-da-da-da. Like I don't have time to read all that and edit and do all the things that I'm doing, and then it it just becomes this crazy, um, this crazy like snowball effect. And so what happens is, is it, it's too much, and you need you need people to do that. And if you can step in as an author and do that, it makes a huge difference.
1: I, I
2: have a question for you. I want to talk about something that um, it, I think it, it, it's also opaque to to folks who are just writing and who have no idea how you go from writing a manuscript to publishing a book that like we've talked a lot about editors, but the editors, you cannot get your book into the hands of editors without an agent. Right? So it's like, you first have to find an agent who actually will send your book to editors. Otherwise, basically a few places have open calls like once a year, like gray wolf has an open call for an essay collection once a year. And they literally get 5,000 essay collections and pick one. Um, So it's actually usually the hardest part of publishing is not finding an editor for the book once it goes out, but is usually finding an agent who will represent the book. I say that as someone who sent out like four books um, with my former agent and none of them got bought. So I know it's not like always that simple, but, and and then querying agents is a whole other job with a set of particular rules that, you know, agents will essentially, the agent's assistants will basically delete your email if you send them an email that is not in the format that they request or expect expect or write about on their webpage so does anyone want to talk about their like agenting journey
3: i was just talking to an ex last night you know mentoring an ex about how to get an agent which i feel like i am constantly doing i don't know why i become the life coach or like missing mother figure to like every ex i've ever had but like we always get like this kind of like conversation of how do I d- get an agent? How do I make it? How do I break through? And it's like, you got to make your work, guys. Like, you got to write. Like, yeah. it, like I, I think there's like a, I can't remember if it was like a panel or something, but someone asked like Neil Gaiman, well, I don't really care about Neil Gaiman, but like someone asked Neil Gaiman, like, oh, what's like the best advice that has ever been given to you, you know, as a writer? And he said, well, write. And, like, Mm. everyone, you know, most people would react Then be like, well, that's, like, kind of a bit, you know, sarcastic. Like, I don't know if that's very helpful. But, like, any writer in the room is like, yep, 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 he has a point. Yep, Yep. you have to write. And, like, it's true. Like, an agent or representation of any kind... If you're doing your job right, we'll find you. Obviously, Uh you should go on dates with a lot of agents. You should, you should, you know, proposition agents. You should, you know, schmooze at parties, talk to as many as you can. But if you are writing and putting that writing out there, even if it's like not at publication publications, even if it's on your own terms, on your own blog, on your Instagram, even because agents love to find people through Instagram. Like, however you need to do it, just fucking write.
1: Yeah. I mean Agreed. Well put.
4: I mean, it is the most important ingredient in all of this. <laughs> <laughs> because a literary agent cannot sell you. They have to sell your writing.
3: I and I say this as someone who did not write for years and was like why don't i have an agent like i i say this from personal experience
4: i'm not saying this just to be like a jackass no we remember these i i i mean we have the receipts from the group text from years ago i was like why don't i have an agent and and we're like well fran did you show them an agent for what did you show them your book and fran would be like i showed them the marketing proposal for my book (laughs) the deck I i sent them the deck for the phone. <laughs> the, the, the agent Lala. gets the Wait, like It's also, I
2: mean, it's it's just again, I'll just reiterate that the, the I have friends who go through the agenting process and will get a list of 40, 50 agents and just send them the same thing. So it's about customizing and personalizing, mm-hmm. yes. But it's also about getting a sense for who's actually going to be a good fit. Yeah. Number one, who's actually going to read your work and be more likely to like it. So like who represents people that do work like yours. And then, you know, they say this all the time. It's like the the form agent rejection is I'm not going to be a good advocate for this work. Right. And it hurts. It's just like you're like, fuck you. Fuck you. You know, but fundamentally, you don't want to work with an agent who is who doesn't get your work or who's trying to make it something that is not really. And so patient. I mean, I am the least patient person in the world, uh, but patience is Really important and Mm -hmm. start with the concept, the page, the sentences Mm -hmm. and build from there.
1: But also don't forget that. And I've, I've had to also have this discussion with people. Don't forget that your agent works for you, you know? Because those Mm -hmm. relationships, like, especially if they're insecure or not very good at their job, they'll make you feel like you should be grateful to have them. They should be grateful to have you because you are the one making the work and doing the thing. And unfortunately, I had to learn that
4: the hard way with an agent who wasn't so good.
5: (laughs) Mm -hmm.
4: (laughs) Yep. That's 100. That's 100% true. I just, I co-sign all of that. It's, it's, it's beautiful. It's wonderful advice.
3: So what are y'all waiting for? Get out there and write.
1: So, I'm feeling full, but like I could fit one more thing inside of me. Den knows how I feel. Can we make oh, it two? Oh.
2: Is it a book? Are you going to fit a book inside I'm of you, I'm going teams? to have
1: to put the cherry on the top this week. Today, we are recording on Tuesday, April 5th, which is the pub date for Chantal mm. V. Johnson's debut novel, Post Traumatic. I'm a little... Such a good title for a book, by the oh, way. It's such... And the, and the cover, my it's fucking God. It's such the a cover. good book. I swear to God, if you start ri- reading this, you're going to finish it because it is addictive writing. It's that kind of writing that is so good and so clever that it makes you want to write. Like, this book will put you mm. in the mood to do the thing. And, I mean, I'm a little bit biased because Chantal's one of my best friends. Um, she's She and I and Lauren Wilkinson and Max Steele and a few other people had this Literary Collective, like that's how we got our start. It was like we all re- wrote for each other in zines and like I published them. And then I, I it was called the Birdsong Collective and I hosted readings and stuff like that. And so I had really like Chantal, when I met her, um, was kind of a she was an academic and had kind of given up writing. And mm-hmm. by providing the space of the zine and Birdsong and a constant encouragement, she finally started writing again. And I've mm-hmm. seen her writing. Mature and her process matures so much over the past few years. And I know that she'd always wanted to write this book and had never given herself the permission, really. And we like it's just by creating a cohort of friends and of support. Like we all, you know, um, we were all encouraging each other to make work. And so it's nice to see mm-hmm. the fruition of this labor come out and see it to the and make it into the world. And it's just about, you know, the sort of funny devastations that happen in a life after childhood abuse. And the, mm. you know, it's like the, the abuse isn't directly mentioned. It's not tr- trauma porn. You know, it's not at all. It's Mm -hmm. actually, it's called post-traumatic. It's not about the trauma. It's about what happens afterwards in an adult life and the ways in which we attempt to um, mitigate our harm and don't know how to get out of compulsive cycles of whatever, whatever coping mechanism you might have. Mm -hmm. And you find this, This I I blurbed it. So, you know, um, but I said, it's a book that learns and unlearns itself continually. And it's like, and it's watching a mind or it's like reading a mind figure out that like they're the villain. <laughs> you know, like wow. you're not the hero. You're the villain. And to be like, I don't want to live like this anymore. And it has got my favorite ending of all time. I mean, it's so rhythmic and her, the, the, the writing is so propulsive and it's just like it it beautifully you have to read the whole thing you know it's like not one of those things where you yeah. can read a couple of chapters and get the character because the character evolves and you watch that evolution and you watch them almost like 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 a train wreck you know you watch them make the be- the wrong decision over and over and over again until they have to learn how to change and it's just so beautifully rendered and uh it's and like it's like a uh uh afro latina um psychiatric worker and just, and karaoke aficionado and constant dater <laughs> and you know it's like I, I've, I'm have i so incredibly energized by this work and everyone mm-hmm. go pick that shit out it's on shelves now come on now do you need any more yes. ringing endorsement than that
2: mm. I'm going to pick up my copy it's this beautiful. afternoon from the bookstore Ooh,
1: mine is, mine cool. is already pre- shipping love 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 Sweet. so that is Post Traumatic by Chantal V. Johnson her debut novel and my really good friend This episode of Food for Thought is made possible by the generous, unequivocal support of Rosé and our new home at Stitcher. Our producer is the soft butch to our hard femme, Alexandra De Palma. Subscribe, rate, and review us five stars on iTunes, or I stitch Joe, Fran, and Den together human centipede style. No! (laughs) Wait, who would be in front and who would be in back? (laughs) Who would be in front and and who would be in Mm (laughs) back? Truly. Oh, I am Tommy Tebbs-Pico. You can find me at Hey HeyTebbs, H-E-Y-T-E-E-B-S on Instagram because I deleted Twitter.
2: I'm Joseph Osmondson. You, you can find a pre-order link for my book, Virology, at www.virologybook.com.
3: I'm Fran. You can find me at Fran Squishko anywhere you want and listen to my new podcast, Like a Virgin, with Rose Domio.
4: And I'm Den Michelle Norris, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at The Den Michelle, and follow my editorial pursuits at Electric Literature. Find us
1: as gay sluts who read on Instagram, and join us on Facebook and Twitter at Food for Thought Pod. And finally, send your thoughts, concerns, and dick pics to thoughts at foodforthoughtpodcast.com. As always, that's food, the number four, and thoughts spelled how no You're doing it on
3: purpose. You ruined that yeah, on purpose. absolutely.
0: Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week.